Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. You know, w- w- one thing that we wanted to do this morning was finish our deeper series, our, our sermon series on the whole concept of deep- deeper. How many of you have been enjoying the deeper series? Amen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a couple of us, other of us have been, you know, sleeping through it. Uh, but it's okay. Uh, because the first week we talked about together going deeper in fasting and prayer. And we covered the whole one desire fast. I think a lot of people, uh, got really hungry, but really experienced God in a deeper way. The second week, last week, we talked about deeper in what? God's Word. God's Word and how rich and powerful and purposeful it is. And then this week, we're actually going to close out the deeper series uh, a little bit early because we wanted to start our new series on Nevertheless next week. But today, we're going to finish by talking about going deeper in self-awareness. Going deeper in self-awareness. And I, I just wanted to start with a question for us this morning. And the question is, what's something that you look at But you can't really tell what it is unless you go deeper. Unless you really examine, inspect, and understand it in a different way. What's something that when you look at it at first glance, you can't really tell what it is until you go into it a little bit further. And has anyone here played the game Cranium? A handful of you. It's, I think, maybe like a little bit more of an American game. So some of you have never played it before. But there's a part of the game called Cranium. It's a board game. And part of the board game Cranium, there's the one part of the game where it gives you a couple pictures of things zoomed in very, very much. Right? I think some of us might have remembered this from, uh, I think, Harvest Games. Some of the the, the, I think it was like a chicken sandwich, a fast food chicken sandwich, zoomed in, and you had to figure out what it was in order to win points. And I wanted to do that this morning and play a little interactive game with some of us, some of us who were very perceptive, to try to figure out what some of these things are by inspecting very, very close-up, zoomed-up photos in order to discover what it is deeper inside. So... Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the first photo, the zoomed up photo, on the screen. And then I'm going to have you guess. And then I'm going to show you what it is. And we'll see how good you are or how observant many of you are. Okay, ready? Okay, some of you are not ready. Turn to your neighbor and say, are you ready? <laughs> All right, okay. Let's say first photo we have here. What is it? Oh, yes, very good. It is? A melon or cantaloupe. Okay. Awesome. Some of you really like this game too much. Okay, next one. What is this? Some of you think is a pepper. Any other guesses? Not a tomato. Not plastic. Okay, show it. It's the lid of a Coke bottle. Oh, that one was hard. That one was a hard one. All right, next one. What is this? Yes, it's spaghetti. Pasta. That was an easy one. All right, what's the next one? What's this? Mishan. No, it's not Mishan. It's not my fun either. What? Toothbrush. Yes, 
toothbrush. The bristles of a toothbrush. All right, next one. What's this? Oh, that was good. Chocolate. Milk chocolate. It's a bar. It's the side view. It's really interesting. I never knew chocolate had bubbles, right? And, and, and it's, it's interesting. You actually get like half the chocolate that you pay for. So it's kind of an injustice in that sense. Okay, what do we have next? Some of you say, how many say orange? Pencil. Pencil. Yes, it is a pencil. <laughs> Very good. All right, I think there's a couple more. What's this? Oreo. Yes, it is an Oreo. <laughs> how? How? Injustice. Okay, right, what's the next one? What's this? This is the last one, or second to last one. Carrot? Why do you think it's a carrot? Tie-dye? Yeah, it is a carrot. It is carrot. Good job. There's one more, and um, this one's going to be a little bit more, although some of you may get this right off the bat, but I have three pens up here, and I took a photo of it at my home um, last night, but I brought them with me. Um, and I want to show you the photo. And what I want you to tell me is what are the brands of the pens? All right, what is the left one over here? And what is this one in the middle? And what is the right side? Marker? You are correct with the HMCC pen. You are correct with Muji. No one got the right side? Does anyone care to look and come and, up and look at it? It's called Faber-Castell. Some of you who are art nerds will probably get it. But it's interesting. <clears throat> when, when we look at something deeper, or when we look at something up close at first... It's a little bit hard to tell what it is until you stare at it for a little bit longer and then you identify. And some of you are really, really good at this game. You probably go to the arcade and play that like, you know, game or whatever. But there's something about looking at something and then expecting it deeper that takes some time for us to understand it. And uh, actually the, the pen thing was something that my engineering professor did uh, my first year in university. And he actually brought three different balls of different metal types. And he put it on a projector, and he didn't use like a projector like this. He just put it on one of those, you know, um, one of those light projectors. And he brought the physical balls, and he said, how many of you know what material these balls are? And all of us guessed, and we wrote down answers. We were sitting in our seat, and we were so frustrated because we are like, how, like, how is it possible that we can find out what exact metal they are because... All the metals, they look the same. Now, I think with the pens, you can kind of tell because you, some of you love Muji pens, right? And you go, you live, you live and die by Muji pens. And you know exactly what the Muji pens look like. And so you know, and then some of you use the HMCC pens like all the time. And you take them away from the hospitality team. And you're like, oh, I know what that pen is, right? But that's the, that's the thing is because we're so familiar, we know it. But how many of us, we actually came up to say, hey, I could just grab the pen because I told you that I brought it here with me this morning. 
you can actually just look and see the branding on the pen. And I was so frustrated because my, my professor, he did the same thing. He's like, yeah, none of you came, walked up to the podium to inspect the balls. And actually, the, the type of metal on the balls was labeled right there. He's like, none of you thought about doing that. And all of us, like, all of us in the audience were like, oh, my God, such an annoying professor, you know? Like, what student is going to physically get out of their seats, walk up to the front, and, like, look at the ball? That You know, that's something you just don't do in class, right? It's just, like, weird. Why would you do something? But the point that he was trying to make is that some of us, we don't really think outside the box to look deeper into something, to actually inspect, to actually search out something. I know he, he used it as like an engineering lesson. Like as engineers, you need to go up, you know, and actually test something and get your hands dirty and figure things out. And, and for me, it was, it was such a resounding moment. I don't, I don't know why I still remember it. It was like almost 10 years ago. Was it 10 years ago? Oh my God. It was more than 10 years ago. It was like 11, 12 years ago now. And I don't know. It stuck out to me of realizing that there's so many things that I look at face value, but I never, really inspect. I never, never really discover and look deeper inside. And I, and I realized for so many of us, that's not just, you know, a fun game of Zuma that we play that, you know, we're just like, okay, trying to guess like star fruit or carrots or Oreos or things like that. But it's actually something that we encounter that happens to us every single day. And for us, on the surface level, we, we might not be able to make out everything that goes out in life. But there are certain things that if we do not go deeper, if we do not inspect at a deeper level, then we're really going to miss out on what God wants us to understand. That happens, especially as today we're going to talk about self-awareness. We're going to talk about like going deeper in what our hearts are feeling and thinking, what are our emotions are, what are our grudges, what are our belief systems, what are our insecurities. Because those things on the surface level, they just might come out as irritation, frustration, inconvenience. But they point to something deeper about us and who we are in our heart condition, which if it lets, if we let it go untreated or uncovered, then that has dire consequences for us farther down the line. Not just for us as people, but for our spiritual lives as we continue to follow God. And so in Jeremiah 17.9, we're going to talk about just what it means to go deeper in self-awareness and understand our heart in deeper ways because that's so important for our health as followers of Jesus Christ. So hopefully you've turned to Jeremiah 17.9-10. And there are going to be a couple things that we need to understand or focus on as we go deeper in our hearts. And the first point that I wanted to talk about is the junk in my heart. The junk in my heart. And the reason why I use the personal pronoun my instead of our or their heart is because it needs to go personal for us. Today it has to go personal for us. So let's read verse 9 together. Uh, let's read it in verse 9. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I know that um, for some of you who were here last week, we, we used this as a cross-reference, right? We were studying, um, you know, the, the Word of God, and we were saying the Word of God is living and active, 
you know, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, uh, judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart, right? And so when we talked about the heart, we said, you know what? Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 is a good cross-reference because it tells us the heart is deceitful above all things, above all measure, and we need God's Word to understand it. But today we want to look into what does it actually mean for the heart to be deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Well, our first question is, why is the heart so important? What, what is the heart to begin with? Well, the meaning of the word heart, according to Strong's Concordance, it talks about the heart as inner man or mind or will. Inner man is the mind or the will. And all of us have different understandings of, of the heart. Some of us, like medical terminology, are like, oh, it's your organ that bumps, like doom, doom, doom. And, and if you don't have one, you'll die, right? In a spiritual sense, we know that the heart is the wellspring of life. It, it's your, it's, some of us, we think of it as the conscience, but that's part of, you know, that's the mind, but then it also says it's the mind. It's also some concept of inner man. So, you know, some of us are like, like, what is this little man? Is it this little angel or demon on my shoulder that's like talking to me? Um, but whatever it is, it's something very, very important inside of us that has something that drives us, that leads us, that dictates who we are, what we care about, what is it that we're doing? And the heart is described in two ways. And as there's a question at the end. So we want to look at these two descriptions and the question that's posed at the end. The first description that the author describes the heart as is deceitful above all things. It's deceitful above all things. According to the Cambridge English Dictionary, the definition of deceive is to persuade someone that something false is the truth or to keep the truth hidden from someone for your own advantage. Okay, so it, it's it's keeping something that is true away from someone else or something else for your own advantage. Like, I don't know how many of you in like primary school, like this is like all how all kindergartners and like, you know, you probably remember like telling you, your friends like, oh, oh, like, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. Like, and then you're playing like your best game ever. Or you have that Pokemon card or like that Beanie Baby toy that you really love. You don't want to share with anyone, right? And so you deceive your friend in telling them that, like, oh, it's nothing special, just so you can keep it for yourself. But what is it deceiving here? What is the heart deceiving here? Is it someone else? Or I'm wondering if the author is saying, no, what the heart is trying to deceive is ourselves. The heart is really trying to deceive yourself. Paul says in Romans 7, 15 through 19, he says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Someone was like, this is a mouth. It's like, it sounds like a tongue twister, right? <coughs> so I'm like, what is it saying? <clears throat> He's saying, 
There are certain things that I want to do, that I should do, but I just can't do it. There are some things that I should not do, and even though I should not do it, I find myself constantly doing it over and over and over again. Well, what is Paul saying? He's saying there's something inside of us. In the passage, he says there's a sinful part of us and there's a spiritual part of us. There's a fleshly side of us. There's a spirit nature in us. And that fleshly side is constantly tugging with their spiritual side. And even though we know there are certain things that we want to do, we just cannot get ourselves to do it. And you're thinking like, am I schizophrenic? Do I have two personalities that literally one shuts off and the other takes over and therefore like I do this? You know, like can you imagine like you're walking around in in school and and this is like some of us we blame um, not just school, but let's say you're at work and you're like working on this assignment or this project you really don't want to work on. And all of a sudden your flesh turns on. You're like, hi flesh. And you're like, I just don't feel like I'm doing anything today and I'm just going to procrastinate. So click YouTube. And oh, this looks fun. And then you go and watch all these like, I don't know. I don't know why, but the only YouTube that video that comes to mind is like watching aircraft take off and land. Like really cool stunts of aircraft taking off and land. I don't know if you've ever hit those YouTube videos. But like, can you, like, I don't know if you imagine that, like, you step into this, like, alternate reality of yourself and all of a sudden YouTube videos are attractive. Like, no, it doesn't happen like that, right? You're still the same person. But there's something about your heart inside, something deeper that's deceiving yourself for you to think that somehow that you have the time to waste on this YouTube video. And most of us, we don't think about it consciously every single day. Most of us, we don't think like, oh yeah, today I'm going to waste my time on YouTube. Today I I plan to procrastinate for 10 hours. And no, we don't plan these things, but it just comes up. And the interesting thing is that this verse says it's deceitful above all things. What else do we know that's deceitful in the Bible? Who else is a liar? It's Satan. It's the devil. And I don't know if the author was, you know, saying that the heart is deceitful more than Satan or more than the devil, but it's interesting that he says the heart is deceitful above all things. That your heart is even more deceitful to yourself than maybe even Satan is. Not because your heart is strong, not because Satan is not powerful, not because he's not at work, but because I'm wondering if because we don't really see our hearts as deceitful. We don't really understand the depths that our hearts can deceive ourselves. I'm wondering if we are conscious of the fact that our hearts unconsciously are continuing to deceive and help make us question different things. Warren Buffett, and this is, I mean, I don't, I don't think he's Christian by any means. He's like one of the richest men in the world. He's very, very successful. But he says this very interesting statement. He says, what the human being is best at doing is interpreting all new information so that their prior conclusions remain intact. I'll read it again. What the human being is best at doing is interpreting all new information so that their prior conclusions remain intact. I, I, I think some of us, we probably understood this. If not through the past couple months, with everything happening in Hong Kong, you understand that when you consume a certain type of media, you're prone to believe something because what? 
it already ag agrees with what you already believe. And that's something that psychologists call confirmation bias. And I, I was like, kind of like geeking out about this because I, I like biology and science and all this stuff. And so any of you who are like psychology majors or sociology majors or biology majors, you know that part of the reason why we have confirmation bias is biological. There are neurophysicists who say that there's something about routes in your brain, the neurons firing in your brain. If they fire in a certain manner, what happens? And that, that pathway gets built up. It makes it much easier for that pathway to continue firing in that manner. And so anything you see, new information that you see, if it confirms what you believe, what? You're that much more likely inclined to continue to believe that. And you look for information that you will continue to believe that way. And I'm wondering if we understand that there's so much confirmation bias throughout our lives in every single aspect of who we are. And that so many aspects of that are an indication of our heart deceiving ourselves in ways that we don't want to believe. What worldview do you subscribe to? Let's say about yourself. I mean, some of us, we struggle a lot with insecurity. We struggle a lot with worth. We struggle a lot with identity. Like if you grew up believing that you're not good enough, if you grew up believing by someone telling you the constantly you're not smart enough, you're not going to accomplish these things. Like you're not perfect. You haven't attained enough. Because that pathway has been molded in your mind for so long. Like how do you think that you will respond in a situation where you're challenged to do something that you don't believe that you can do? So many of us, we buckle under that pressure. Because we just automatically think, oh, I just can't do it. Why? Because of that confirmation bias. How about about others? Like if there's something that someone wronged you in, something that someone does against you, to harm you, to hurt you, what's your first reaction? Is it to judge that person? Is it to automatically assume certain things about that person? Not give them benefit of the doubt? Not love them? Not care for them? How many of us realize that's the depth of our heart? That's the deceitfulness of our heart? About God. It's not just people, it's about God. Some of us, we've been let down by God, quote unquote. And we're like, God, you haven't done this for me. You haven't done that for me. Some of us are just tired of everything going on in Hong Kong. Like, God, how can you be good if there's so much stuff happening in Hong Kong? And every new tragedy or every new news that comes up, you just get more depressed, more angry at God, more frustrated at God. Why? Because in your heart, you've already confirmed. The deceitfulness of your heart has already said God is not good. And you just reinforce that path over and over again. I just wanted to give two more examples. <clears throat> One is for some of us who are not from Hong Kong. Some of us, we have this deceitfulness of our heart, or this confirmation bias among people in Hong Kong where we're like, you know what, this virus thing, like, people are just freaking out. And I don't know why, like, these people, they're just going crazy. They're wearing masks all the time, shutting down schools, postponing everything. And then automatically, your first instance is to judge people. Your first instance is to be like, what's wrong with them? Why are they so, like, frantic about everything? And I'm wondering, if we look into our side of our hearts, like, how much of it is compassion? How much of it is understanding? How much of it is love for people? that you operate out of, rather than deceitfulness of your heart. 
It goes the other way too. Some of us were like very health conscious and like trying to do everything. You're like, you didn't live through SARS. You didn't go through all this kind of stuff. And we're looking at all these other people who are like, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you freaking out? Why aren't you doing things? Like, are you not concerned about what's going on? And we automatically judge and assume things about that group of people. We don't realize maybe there's some deceitfulness in our heart. Bias about foreigners, strangers, people from outside that they don't care. And this goes on to so many other things. Things like the church. You know, like, oh, my leaders constantly, every time they want to talk to me, it's something bad. Every time they, they want to meet up with me, they have something to bring up and criticize me for. They must hate me. Without realizing maybe it's the deceitfulness of our hearts that leads us to those conclusions. Rather than saying, you know what, maybe there's something true or maybe there's something that they are doing because they care, because genuine they love us in different ways. I'm wondering how many of us, we see these kind of confirmation biases in our lives. We see the deceitfulness in our hearts and realize there's so many things that are in there that we haven't even realized before, that we haven't noticed before. We see not only the deceitfulness above all things, but we're looking at the heart, which is also desperately sick. Other translations translate desperately sick as extremely sick. Or the NIV It says, beyond cure. Beyond cure. The heart is desperately sick. It's beyond cure. So what do we do? I think many of us were like, okay, well, it's beyond cure, so what can you do? uh, There's nothing else we could do about it, so let's just give up and just, okay, it's going to be sick. What happens if you don't cure a sickness? There are things called chronic illnesses where you're sick for the rest of your life. Or what happens? What? You die. Right, so it, it like I, I think it's so interesting. We treat spiritual illnesses differently than physical illnesses, right? As soon as you like, oh, this is what happens. Like you're you're riding the MTR, and this is what's happening. I, I've I've had a cough um, for the last couple of weeks, and then every single time I'm like freaking out in the MTR because I feel this little itch in my neck throat, and I'm like, oh my goodness! Like if I cough in the MTR, everyone else is gonna like whoosh, like. Like, as if there's, like, a really strong, like, magnet, you know, around me that pushes everyone away. And I'm like, please don't cough, please don't cough. And I, like, hold it, and I swallow my spit, and I do everything possible to not cough. But what happens when we see someone who's sick, we cough. We say, go to the hospital, get some medication. We'll pray for you from a far distance, but, like, do whatever you can to get better. Like, that's our natural response. Like, try to cure it, try to heal it. I'm wondering, why isn't that our same response to a spiritual illness, to a spiritual sickness that we have? Sickness is incurable. And if we do not cure that sickness, then what's going to happen? We're going to die a spiritual death. And we're not even going to be aware of it. James 1, 14 to 15, in the New Living Translation, it says, Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. That's the consequence of uncured spiritual sickness, which is called sin. And I think many of us, we take sin way too lightly. Like, this is, this is the crazy thing, right? Like, we take Wuhan coronavirus so seriously. It's like, you whisper it, Wuhan, right? You're like, oh my gosh, right? 
And you're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? What do I do? And you're like, oh my gosh. And then you're like, you whisper, sin. You're like, yeah, we all sin. Like, who cares? Like, what? what you know, it's such a different response. And why is that? Why is that? Like with the Wuhan virus, you close down whole cities. Right? No one can go in or go out. You search everything. You quarantine everything. I was like, again, I was on Wikipedia and I was like looking up the history of SARS and like, and it's incredible the detail of information that they get for how SARS spread. Like they know to the exact minute, to the exact person. It was like the ninth floor of this hotel. Some of you who lived through that period of a super spreader who was like the very first instance of SARS that spread in Hong Kong. And then from that, people traveled to like Vietnam and all these places and it spread all over the place. They did all that research just to find out why or how SARS spread. So the what? They could cure it. My question is, when's the last time we saw our spiritual sickness and we took that same amount of diligence and effort to say, I want to find out where and exactly how that sin came into my life and I want to squash it. I need to find out exactly where it originated from, where it spread, how it came about, who it impacted. Because if I do not, then death is the consequence. Because death is the consequence of sin. Some of us, I know, I'm not trying to belittle the virus. I'm not trying to belittle this. I I think it's very something that we should take seriously. But my question is, if we take it this seriously, why don't we take sin just as seriously? If we believe that eternal life and eternal death is the most important thing in eternity and in our universe, being with God, then not only should we be considered for our own lives concerned, but are we considered for the spiritual health, life or death of people around us? And I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that many of you came to worship. Maybe some of you really believe it's important to worship, to grow spiritually and to understand God in a deeper way. But I'm wondering how many of us, you know, we're, we're, we're praying for the victims. We're praying for those who are sick who have the virus. How many of us were praying not just for physical healing, but we're praying for them to know the gospel of Jesus Christ? How many of us were praying for people who are fearful right now to know the hope of Jesus Christ? That no matter what happens, that they will know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And even if, God forbid, that they pass away, that they will have a security and eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ. Like, do we believe that? Or are we just like every single other person in the world that is so fear-driven, that is afraid because if you die, then everything is over and you have no hope for eternity? Like, do we live out in a way that represents our faith, even with the sickness? That's my challenge for us this morning. How can we really understand the deceitfulness of our heart and how it's desperately sick and be concerned because Jesus Christ is Lord of all? I want to just finish out with that last phrase in that statement. It says, who can understand it? Who can understand it? And this is a rhetorical question. In NLT, it says, who really knows how bad it is? In the Amplified, it says, who can understand it fully and know its secret motives? He's just reinforcing the things in the first two phrases, right? Just reinforcing how the heart, their secret motives, there's, there's something sick, there's something so bad inside of it. Who can understand it? And in some ways he is inferring you can't by yourself. You're not able to on your own. And with that, it could produce two responses in us. Either 
We could just give up and just say, well, if I can't understand it, then I just give up and just who cares? Then I'll just live apathetically and, you know, with whatever. Or we can say, you know what? I want to search. I want to investigate. I want to understand. Because as I understand, it gives me the ability to respond. And the only way, the only way we're going to be able to understand it is if we know God. We understand His gospel. Tim Keller in this Gospel and Life Study Guide, it's a, it's a study guide on his book um, about Grace Changes Everything. He says this. He says, The gospel, if it is really believed, removes neediness, the need to be constantly respected, appreciated, and well-regarded, the need to have everything in your life go well, the need to have power over others. All of these great, deep needs continue to control you only because the concept of the glorious God delighting in you with all His being is just that. A concept and nothing more. It's just a concept for so many of us. Our hearts don't believe it. So they operate in default mode. Default mode is not believing that God is who He is. Paul is saying that if you want to really change, you must let the gospel teach you. That is to train, discipline, coach you, over a period of time. You must let the gospel argue with you. You must let the gospel sink down deeply into your heart until it changes your motivation and views and attitudes. What Tim Keller is saying is that our default mode of our hearts is what? It's unbelief. It's giving in to deceit. It's desperate sickness. And the only cure, the only hope that we have is what? The good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel message. And it is that gospel message that has to go deep down inside of us to transform us, to change what's inside our heart. And that's the second point. It's not only that there's junk in our hearts, but it's understanding my heart that we have to understand, that we have to go deeper into. And it's a gospel understanding of our hearts that we need to look into. So let's read verse 10. Verse 10, it says, I, the Lord, search the heart, test the mind, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. We notice here that God is the one who searches the heart. God is the one who does all the effort, all the discovery, all the everything. And the word search You know, I think it's quite interesting that the author uses the word search, that God searches the heart. Like, he could have said anything else. Like, why didn't God say, I heal the heart? Or I restore the heart? Why does he say, I search the heart? Well, that word search, it implies something of effort. It implies a journey. It implies taking time. It implies using resources. The concept search reminds us of Psalm 139, verse 23 to 24. Can we read it together? Verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And many of us, we've, we've read this verse. We've prayed this verse for ourselves. <coughs> And what the author is saying, the psalmist is saying here, he's saying, you have to search your heart. You have to understand it. You have to know it. 
If you really want to cure it, you have to know it. You have to understand it. it it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to take some time. But you have to know it. And, and the ironic part is the psalmist, he's saying, God, know my heart. But how many of us, like how many of you, you've pray, you, you, you love Psalm 139. You're like, oh, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Like I'm like a flower. Like Lord, God loves me, right? Like we love that verse, right? Because it's so encouraging. Like, wow, God loves me. He knows me. And then it's so weird at the end of the psalm, he's like, search me, O God. And we're like, wait, if God already knows me, why does he have to search me? So what is this author really saying? He's saying, no, he's not, I'm not asking God to search me because God doesn't know. It's because I want God to help me to know. Because I need to know. I need to know where my heart is. I need to know where my thoughts are if I'm really going to help understand where my heart is and overcome the different things that are going on. Like, it's really interesting. Um, some of you who have been in my life groups or ministry teams, I've shared with you probably like um, that I have a sleeping problem. And like some of you probably maybe notice because maybe I'll be like passed out somewhere like in public and be like, why is he like sleeping right now? Such an inappropriate place to sleep, right? Um, but by the way, I have a really mild case of narcolepsy. I didn't discover this until after I started working, after I graduated. But like for my whole life, I was so frustrated because like, you know, don't, don't worry. You're not the first group of people who's told me that I sleep everywhere. Okay. I'm not offended. I seem like, like, you know, judging me. I'm like, don't worry. I've been judged a lot for sleeping everywhere. And it's okay. Cause in history class in high school, I slept almost every class. And my teacher was like, are you sleeping again? Like he was just kind of passing off as like normal. And I, I don't know. I think growing up, I was really frustrated. Like, why am I always tired? And my parents, like, they always told me like, yeah, you need a lot of sleep growing up, Bo. Like sleep 10 hours. I was like, no, I want to sleep less. But I was just so frustrated and so angry because I was like, I just don't understand. Like, why do I need to sleep so much? And even if I sleep like eight to nine hours, like I wake up and I'm still tired. And then, you know, like in the morning when you like greet someone, you're usually supposed to be like perky and happy and energized because you, you slept a good night. I'm like, hi, good morning. And they're like, why are you tired? I'm like, I don't know. Like, stop judging me. And eventually I got to a point where, you know, I was like, forget it. Let me get a sleep study. So, after I got insurance, when I started working, I got a sleep study because the company paid for it, mostly. I was like, praise the Lord, thank you for insurance. And uh, when I got the sleep study, because most people were like, oh, maybe you have sleep apnea. It's like when your tongue th- uh, falls in the back of your throat and you can't breathe while you're sleeping. And so, you, they hook you up to all these monitors and you sleep for a night. And then, I woke up the mes- next morning and they were like, you don't have sleep apnea. I was like, wow, come on. Like, I have to. Well, they were like, oh, okay, we're going to do a couple more tests. So you're going to take two hour, uh, uh, short naps, like every two hours throughout the rest of the day. Like, how can I take naps if I just got a full night of sleep the night before, right? It's like, you can't, you just lay, run around in bed. And I was like, okay, well, let me try. And so I take these two hour naps and the technician who was there, there, there's someone on site the whole time while I'm doing this. And then after the whole thing was over, they asked me like, so did you, did you like, uh, how long did it take you to fall asleep? And I was like, oh, like sometimes I felt like it took me a really long time, like 20, 30 minutes to fall asleep. They're like, really? You thought it took you that long? I was like, yeah, why? How long did it take me? They're like, two minutes. I was like, what? Like, it took me that long? And then they're like, and then the, the clinician said, you know what? You have all the symptoms of narcolepsy. Like, pretty much we could diagnose you with narcolepsy. In order to do a full diagnosis, you have to get genetic testing like that and all that kind of stuff. But all the symptoms match narcolepsy. 
And after I realized that, I was like, I am vindicated. You know, I'm like, I am vindicated because now I understand. And, and I was like, what do I do? They're like, well, you can't do anything because that's just how your brain wired up. You could take steroids every single day, but that's pretty expensive. But the best thing that you could do is probably just take short naps throughout the day. And I was like, wow, that makes so much sense because when I take just a 10-minute nap, like I wake up feeling so refreshed and ready. And I was like, wow, like, I don't know, just that click, that understanding, that the effort that it took to go through that sleep study and being misunderstood for like, like 20 some years on my life. I don't know. I was just like this feeling of like, wow. I mean, of course, the, the problem was still there. It's not like I'm now less sleepy than before, but now I understand. Now I get it. Now I'm able to tackle it. Now it's not so much a hindrance to me anymore. Now I can pre- take preventative measures. So every time, like, uh, before I go into a really important meeting, I take a 10 minute nap. You know, and then the people aren't asking, like, why are you so tired? Or, like, why are you so cranky and groggy all of a sudden? No, because I now know what's going on inside my body so I can, can, can do something about it to say, you know what? Because I understand, I want to do my best. And I'm wondering how many of us, we understand in that way the sin in our hearts. Not that you can eliminate all sin. No, we're all going to be imperfect until the day we die. Until we have the day that we go to be with Jesus Christ. But today, do you know? Do you understand? Do you know where your sin comes from? What triggers it? What, where that anger comes out? Where that insecurity comes out? Where that judgmentalness comes out? Where that pride comes out? What situations? What people? How it manifests? Do you know all of that? Do you know all of it to the very point where in the moment you could detect it and in that moment abide and say, Lord, I need your help right now. God, help me to abide and trust and repent because I don't want this sin to affect me. I don't want to keep walking in sin. I don't want to keep letting the deceitfulness of my heart get the better of me because I want to obey you. I want to love you. I want to worship you. How many of us we know the sin to that degree to the point where you said you know what like a di- like a medical diagnosis I know where it comes from I know how it's going to affect me and I know what measures to take to respond to it in verse 10b I know we talked about the, the searching the heart but testing the mind 10b In the message version, it says, get to the root of things. In the NIV, it says, examine the mind. In the New Living Translation, it says, examine secret motives. He's saying, God is saying, I test the mind. I get to the root. I get to the core. I examine your secret motives. How many of us, we say, God, you are my doctor. You are the spiritual doctor. Jesus is the one who's come to heal the sick. Lord, investigate, examine me, uncover my secret motives. And when I was studying this, I was like, oh, this is really interesting because, you know, how last week I told you, look at the cross-references, look at the footnotes, try to understand every single word. So I did that. i got to practice what I preach. And I realized the word mind, you know, it's so interesting. It's translated as kidney. Kidney. I was like, why is it Kidney. I was so surprised, like how, like mind, kidney, it's like so far away, it has nothing to do with each other. And I was looking into it a little bit more, and, and so there's a, there's something called a lexicon, and it just helps you understand language and terms in the Bible. 
So according to Brown Driver Briggs lexicon, the, the, the whole idea of kidney, it means it's figurative, so it's not literal, it's not actually a kidney. It's figurative as seed of emotion and affection. Something to do with your emotions, your affections. You know that same word, kidney, mind, is also used in Psalm 193. Verse 13. This is the, the, the passage that all you of you love. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. That word inward parts is the same word as mind. So what is Paul, or what is the author saying here when he says test the mind? He says test the mind, test the inward parts, test the kidney, test the inward parts, the innermost part of who I am. Just like God formed you in your mother's womb, he knew every intricate inward part of you in your mother's womb. He knew you, He created you, He molded you, He shaped you. He knows every part of you. Because He knows every part of you, He knows us, He made us, then what are we asking Him to do? We're asking Him, reveal every inward, deep, motivational part of us. Every thought, every desire, every every deeper thought that we have. Reveal that to us. Examine us. Help us to see. Help us to understand. Because He already knows. He created us. Because He knows, then we turn to Him to say, you know what, God, help. Help me understand. Help me understand who I am. And as I understand who I am, that's going to help me follow you, deal with my sin, repent, confess, and come back to you. I just wanted to just briefly mention the last part of verse 10. He talks about giving every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And, and some of us, we look at this verse and say, you know, like, God, why do you care so much about the inward parts if you're just going to give to us as our external actions show? And what he's really saying here, he's, he's saying we need to search and examine our minds, the inward parts is because our actions and our deeds are inseparable from what's deep inside. Like this is the problem. Is so many of us, like what we say we believe, is so separate from what we actually do and what we live out. Like, are you with me? Do you understand? Like, some of us, we say we believe in Jesus Christ. We say we have faith. We say we love and we trust God. But then the way we live our lives is so different. And I'm hoping that that difference helps us to realize, you know what, what we say we believe might be really different than what we really believe deep inside. And it's this gap that we have to close so that what we actually believe will be consistent with what we actually do, how we actually live our life. And I know that it's hard. I know some of us, we struggle so much and we're like saying, I I just cannot get myself to live out this perfect life. And God never asks us to live it out perfectly on our own. This is why the prayer for us is a prayer of repentance, is a prayer of asking for help. Psalm 51, verse 7 and 10. This is King David. After he commits sin with Bathsheba, he commits adultery, murder, and lying all at the same time. And this is his response of repentance when he realizes that his sin is so deep. 
He says, Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. That's the only way. That is the only way that as we're asking God to search our hearts, reveal the deeper motives, reveal the sin, expose the things that are going on deep inside, that we can turn and say, Lord, now I'm going to follow you. That's the only way that we could ever possibly do it. It's a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of asking for help, of throwing our arms up and saying, Lord, I can't. But only you can. Only you, God, can give me a new heart, can give me a new opportunity to have life. And the way Jesus did this was what? He gave himself. He gave himself on the cross. He said, this is my body given for you. Sacrifice for you. The blood that I shed, the torture that I felt, the pain that I went through, dying for you. is so that your heart, so that I could take your old heart, heart of stone, and replace it with a heart of flesh. A heart that is sensitive. A heart that is repentant. A heart that now wants to follow me. That is the only way. And it's with our faith in Jesus Christ by saying, yes, Lord, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And you held back the wrath of God because what? I should have died, God, for my sins, for the deceitfulness of my heart. I should have died. But because I did not, Lord, it wells up. It changes my heart. It does something in, in gratefulness. So that, you know what, God? Now all I want to do is I just want to follow you. And that's my prayer for us this morning. That we pray this prayer. God, purify me from my sins. I, I, I will be clean. Wash me. That's a prayer of faith. Because you haven't seen it happen yet. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Because I know you can do it. That's the only way that I'm going to help understand the depths of my heart and come out in a way that's worship to you. And that's why I want us to give us the one thing for this morning. The one thing is that God goes deeper into our heart to give our lives a new start. God goes deeper in our hearts. He's the one who searches us, exposes us, takes out all of the deceit so that our lives can have a brand new start. And for some of us, uh, maybe there are some of us, who we've been coming to church, we've been enjoying life, we've been enjoying community. And we haven't really taken that step of faith to say, you know what, I want to, I want to actually commit myself to Christ. I want to challenge you and encourage you, take that, that step of faith. Because unless you take that step of faith, you will be dead. Spiritually dead. The only way that you can have real spiritual life is by faith in Christ and Christ alone. Some of us, we've been following Christ for a while, for some time. Like this is the process of renewing our hearts. Over and over again. Because some of us, we realize, you know what? Our hearts have gone stale. It's gone cold. And it's only fresh opportunities to repent that will help us to say, you know what? I want to continue to live out the new life that you've given to us. And so I want to give us some next steps, some tangible, practical things for us to respond with. The first is commit to setting aside time to reflect on a regular basis and find accountability for it. Minimally once a week. I know some of you already have journals, but if you do not already have a habit of reflecting, of journaling, I'm going to encourage you to start. Start with one. If you, if you need like a physical thing, buy a journal. There's so many out in Hong Kong. Like Hong Kong is like the, the king of like, um, paper stuff, you know? 
Like, uh, you know, you go to the U.S., you can't, you know, like, but you go to any store in Hong Kong, like, see so many pens and, like, pads of paper. Like, there's so many kinds. Pick one, whatever you like, you know. Or some of you are glued to your phones. Get off Instagram and YouTube and just start journaling for once. You know, I, I think it would really be helpful and practical for us to really go deeper and think about, okay, what was I feeling? Why did I get that way? Why did I respond that way? What was God telling me in that moment? Ask yourself those questions every single day, and that will reveal a lot about your heart. Secondly, invite someone to share with and talk through deeper issues in your heart. If we expect to somehow discover everything about ourselves just on our own, then there's no way that we are going to grow in self-awareness. There are some things that only people outside of you can tell you for you to realize something. Your habits, your mannerisms, the weird tics that you have, you know, like, you know, you do something weird, and you're like, you know, as a person, like, it's really obvious to everyone else, but you don't even notice it. You know, like, I have these weird habits, like, you know, people have to call me out for it, like, I'm always, like, picking my chin. It's a really bad habit. But, like, so it gets to the point where like, I don't even notice it. So, like, whenever someone, like, points it out, I'm like, oh, shoot, like, I didn't even realize what I was doing. There's so many things. <coughs> Sorry, I don't know why that was funny to me. There's so many things in our lives that are like that, right? You don't even, like, nervous things that you do that you don't even realize that you need someone else to speak into your life. To say, hey, why are you doing this? And you're like, well, I didn't even realize I was doing it. Invite people to tell those things to you. Not because they're just trying to criticize you, but out of love. Because they want to help you. And the last thing is pray through Psalm 51 is a model for repentance. I can't stress this enough. There's no other cure, nothing else besides repentance that we can do. And even repentance is not something that we can do to somehow merit and get to God. It's just a response. It's just a response of saying, God, I cannot, Lord, help me. And it's only as God, He intervenes in our life, reminds us of the cross, that we will be restored to a living relationship with Him. And I pray that that will help us to move forward. And can we stand together and we'll respond together. I think sometimes, like when we when we hear these messages, especially when it comes to going deeper in self awareness, deeper in reflection, deeper into our hearts, like there's a tendency of just like feeling like, oh God, I just I can't, you know, nothing comes to mind, and so I'm just gonna sit there and just not really like do anything. But just take the just take the the, the coronavirus. For example, what was your first response to that? Was it fear? Was it anxiety? Was it worry? Did you perpetuate that fear to other people? What was your first response when you got an email from your school administration saying all classes were postponed? Were you celebrating? Like, woohoo, yeah, three more weeks. Or were some of you actually really discouraged? Because you're like, man, I just wish Hong Kong would just get back to normal. Some of us were like so worried, like, oh, what are our families going to think of us? Like, what are, like, how is this going to impact my kids? 
Like little things, little thoughts that just come out in our minds. We don't even think about it. But what was your emotion? What was your response? What was that fear, anxiety, worry, anger, frustration? Feeling suffocated? Feeling depressed? I was talking to someone the other day and they were just sharing with me, you know, like everything that everyone is saying about the virus, the whole situation in Hong Kong, it like just, it's suffocating. And they were saying the more people talk about it, the more anxious they got. The more anxious they got, the more physically sick they felt, ironically. And I realized that so many different thoughts in our minds really draws out different things in our hearts. If we would just go two steps deeper, just start with that. Start with how you felt and say, why did I feel that way? Why did I respond that way? What's going on deep inside? What do I really believe? What am I afraid of? What am I thinking about for my future? What am I worried about when people are looking at me? There's so many possibilities, so many things in our hearts and our minds. We just need to start asking ourselves some questions to really go deeper. So I just want to give us a moment, and, and I try to keep it a little bit shorter so we have some more time just to reflect and to pause and say, God, help me to be more self-aware. Reveal things, expose into my heart. Expose the things of my heart so that I can turn, repent, and trust in you. Let's Don't even go to that step of repentance if you really haven't gone at least five, ten steps deep. To say, God, why am I, why am I thinking this way? Why am I feeling this way? And then after you come to an answer, ask again, why again? You're like, oh my God, why am I like my life group leader? But just do exactly that. Ask why for yourself like five times until you really feel like, man, God, yeah, I understand what the depth of my heart is like. I've searched it, I've understood it, and this is who I am. Can we just do that? I want to just give us a good like five, six minutes or so just to spend some time in reflection and self-evaluation. If you need to journal, go ahead and journal. If you need to reflect, you need to use your phones to journal, not watch YouTube or whatever, then go ahead and do that. And then we'll send some songs and worship together. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.